What inspires business leaders to take their startups to the next level? What helped their dreams to become reality? This is Meet the Makers, a City podcast series produced by EI Studios, the award-winning custom division of Economist Impact. My name is Sam Shaw, a journalist and presenter specializing in business, finance, and technology. In this four-part series, I'll be speaking to founders and CEOs of global SMEs to hear their unique stories of how they built and grew their businesses. In this first episode of Meet the Makers, we'll discuss turning a concept into a startup, how to spot an opportunity in the market, and those early signs that you might actually be set for success. Joining me today is Ainet Gez, co-founder and CEO of Papaya Global. Papaya Global is an award-winning SaaS fintech company that's modernized over $3 billion of payroll for more than 900 companies. Among other accolades, Papaya Global has been included in the Forbes Cloud 100 twice and CNBC's list of top startups for enterprise. Frequently named among the most influential leaders in tech and the woman at the helm of Israel's first female-led unicorn, let's hear how Ainet Gez was inspired to start up. Hello, Ainat. Thanks for the warm introduction. That's great to hear. Okay, taking your mind back, how did you come up with the idea for Papaya Global? Funny enough, I've been dealing with global workforce and global mobility for my whole career. And actually, when I really wanted to shift to the startup world, after having two services company beforehand, both on the relocation and global mobility side, I was browsing through crazy ideas, quite a lot of ideas, And then all of a sudden, I was reading an article actually about the payroll industry and how it's being disrupted in the US. And I was thinking to myself, just a second, I mean, I have all of this knowledge globally. So if the need is coming for a market only in the US, how come I cannot do the same globally? And this is where I realized I can use and utilize quite broad experience that I had during the 20 years of my career and take it to the next level and start Papaya. And when did it strike you that you might be onto something really quite special? Honestly, the first two years of Papaya was nothing but rough. And I think that we had one thing that is very, very important to this stage is persistent and listening to the right people, because you have a lot of voices around you, people that explain to you that it's not needed, that the problem is not big enough, that it's actually not even a pain. And every single time where an investor or somebody told me that it's not a pain, the next thing that I would do is look for a client, like a real person that I know that I can solve this pain and ask him, is it a pain for you? And for us, the turning moment was when we spoke with people that we solved their problems and they were tearing because the stress level of payroll manager is honestly one of the highest that I've seen in my life. And I think that from the moment that we realized that what we do is reducing stress for them. So assuring that they have more confidence in the result, that they work less hard and they have better kind of understanding and grip on the outcome. This is what we do. And I think that once you are finding the emotional kind of solution that you bring to the table, this is where you start to build the real solution. So what would you say was an example of a personal hurdle that you needed to get over in those early stages or perhaps an external challenge that you had to overcome? So we were struggling to raise funds. And obviously, I mean, it's very hard to continue and grow and kind of invest if you don't raise significant funding. And we were forced to work on a bootstrap mode. So, you know, I did the sales and the marketing and operation and the CEO and the fundraising. 
But then the second level of frustration for me is when one of the investors said, you know, your metrics are too good to be true at this stage. So I won't invest because it's actually, I don't know which stage you are. Are you on a seed round? Are you an A round? I mean, your revenues are almost kind of crossing the A towards the B. And I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, no, no, I prefer to stay in my comfort zone. And one of the greatest advice that we received on a very early stage from an investor that actually did not invest, he told us, you know, in order to be the best in class, you need to assure that you are tripling the revenue every single year in the next two years. And then you can double the revenues in the next three years, the following three years. Uh, because this is how the greatest SaaS companies build a revenue stream. And I remember hearing that and then going home and said, how are we going to do that? But actually, we spent the next two weeks to build these metrics internally. This is also what led us to, at the time, raise a significant A round. So after kind of two and a half years where we were struggling, we eventually raised an A round of $45 million, which was very significant at the time because our metrics were kind of blowing out of the charts. So we changed from rough start to relatively easy path afterwards. But I think that you need to really build the fundamental very, very strong. And you need to be convinced that you have a solid business. I think that if you're only convinced when somebody is investing, it's not a good sign because you need to be convinced. And this is kind of the way forward. And, and this is how you build a business. That's really good advice. Was it hard to convince them though? Yes, I think when we started, everything that is related to HR tech, payroll tech, uh, everything on this domain was not something that VCs considered as an area that needs to be disrupted. And I mean, it's always easier to start ventures or to raise funds when your domain and the topic that you are currently working at uh, is considered as a hot topic. I mean, currently, obviously, if we are looking on the world, so AI will be, will be probably the easiest because everyone is looking on AI as the next kind of generation and so on. But you always have those domains that need to be disrupted. Not necessarily uh, VCs has, have enough knowledge or experience, so they don't see it around them. So they don't also get the feedback from the ecosystem that this is important enough. So convincing them even to spend time and to learn the domain uh, was a hard task. I mean, some of them told me, listen, I mean, it might be a very, very interesting domain. I just don't find it interesting enough or big enough for me to just kind of dive into that and learn the domain, learn the problems. So I think that in many cases, you need to assure that you are creating an environment that you can bring VC in and create an interest because if they don't have an interest to dive in, to learn the domain and so on, it will be very hard to raise funds. It will be very hard to convince them to invest significant amount of funding. And by the way, I think that also analysts, I mean, that, that are part of banks and so on are very, very important here because they do provide a lot of insights and intels and data. So if you can bring a real problem to life in terms of kind of speaking with people that are actually in the domain of the problem, that's also creating quite a good echo in the, in the um, ecosystem that will lead up eventually to the right ears that you are trying to raise funds from. On that note, in terms of the early conversations that you had with your banking partners, did they pan out as you expected they would? Did you get what you needed or what you thought you needed at that time? On early stages, you know, you just want to get the validation from the market. And I think banking are great validation to understand trends, to understand what do they see mainly in our business, also to get their perspective on the analyst side and so on. 
So I think that we've got a lot of support. I think that we got a lot of insight and understood the pain, the competitive landscape and so on from those conversations. And it was always very, very helpful. And this is also a lesson that I think that it's very important. Even those days when you are entering a new market, you think that you understand the competitive landscape. But in reality, you need to hear it also from the analyst side. You need to hear it from other people's side to understand what is that they see and what's the difference between what you see and they see in order to find kind of the path towards what you are building. Okay, that's interesting. Um, at Papaya, you're one of three founders. What advice would you give about maintaining your relationships with your co-founders, particularly as your business grows? Honestly, co-founding a company and the whole journey is, is second marriage. I mean, there is no other way to describe it. It's probably one of the most meaningful relationships and the place and the people that you're going to spend the most time with. Um, and when I chose Ruben and Offer, I really wanted to choose people that I felt that can take the worst out of me in working together and eventually make it uh, happen and make it a success. We definitely not in 100% an agreement on quite a lot of things, but uh, we developed over the time the practice of who is eventually taking the last decision that we follow. And, and what we did internally is that we decided that we split the responsibilities. So each one of us has different hats and different responsibilities. And eventually, when we are kind of considering different paths, we all have a, a veto right in our domain. So even if the way that we see things is completely different, and we have quite a lot of different opinion. We will hear them all. We will argue as we know. But eventually there is always one person that can say, okay, I heard you all, but this is how I decide to do that. And I think that one thing that I learned along the way is that there is no one solution to every problem. There is quite a lot of ways that you can get to a solution. And honestly, it's very hard to understand or to predict what's the best outcome or what's the 100% right outcome, right? It's a journey. There are a lot of different changes and so on. So it's always a 50% kind of a gamble uh, that you don't know and you are hoping for the best outcome. So you need to respect someone stepping in saying, this is the way that we're going to follow. And you also need to trust him to be genuine enough that if he took the wrong decision, he will be able to kind of say it out loud. Listen, that's not the right path. Let's change it immediately and do it on the quickest turnover and time that is possible. I know a lot of progress has been made in the past few years, but it's still a huge challenge, to put it mildly, for female founders to raise venture capital. And I know you're doing some fantastic work working with other female entrepreneurs and providing a support network to them. Can you tell me a bit more about that experience? I'll start by saying that it's definitely a topic that I think that we should all address and we should try to create a very equal kind of environment, but also uh, let's not fool ourselves that there are no differences. But having said that, I always say that we need to be also very candid with ourselves because it's not that every no that I got along the way from investors because I'm, I'm a female founder, I mean, a lot of them or the majority of them were actually because they just didn't want to invest in the domain and this is perfectly fine. So. When I'm working and I'm trying to coach and mentor quite a lot of female founders, I always tell them, first, don't apologize for being a female, okay? We don't need to apologize for that. We actually need to take it to a place where we feel super confident about ourselves and we know that eventually 
if we chose to lead a company, if we chose to incorporate a company, it means that we have the full confidence in ourselves that we will be able to do it uh, regardless if we have kids, regardless if we are planning to have kids and so on. So about myself, uh, I mean, it might sound silly, but when I first realized on, on my first pregnancy that I'm pregnant, I went and apologized to my angel investors. I felt really the need to apologize for them that I'm pregnant. And looking backwards, I'm, and, and they were super passionate. And, and I think probably they, they didn't realize what, what I want from them at this stage. But I think that eventually this is a mindset that a lot of female founders has that, oh my God, I took a personal decision. I chose to bring kids to the world. So now I'm going uh, eventually kind of harm the, the company growth and so on. So we don't need to apologize for anything. I think that eventually this is a temporary phase and eventually... 100% of the female founders that I know uh, were able to grow from this situation and actually kind of build much more resilience company due to the fact that they knew that they had to do it. So it all starts with really kind of putting things on the table, really kind of stopping this um, approach of we are less good or we are coming with disadvantage to the table because we are female founders. And But again, as I said also, it, it's not an advantage. It shouldn't be an, a disadvantage, but it's also not an advantage. So it means that uh, there is still a lot of work to do. And I think that every single feedback that I received from investors uh, that did not invest it, I really took it internally to understand why they didn't invest. And I mean, telling or telling story to myself and telling them, yeah, they didn't invest because I'm a female founder. This is a very, very easy way for me uh, to kind of to deal maybe or to find a quick uh, re a resolution for myself, but this is not being candid with yourself. So even if you think that 20% of it is because you're a female founder, find the 80% reasons why they did not invest um, and assure that you are tackling them, assure that you have good answer for them for the next meeting that you have. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, what about when hiring, especially in that early startup phase? How did you go about finding the right people to join you on the journey? It's a very tricky question because I think that we all think that the right people for their journey in the beginning are people that came from big companies in the domain that can help us kind of set networks and connections and so on. From my perspective, it's almost like, and I'll take it to the kind of, to the kids' uh, examples and metaphor because I think it's it's very correct. It's like I'll let my two years old kid play with a 10 years old uh, kid. They don't have anything in common at this stage. They might, <laughs> they might have on later stages, they might meet in the middle. But currently, this is too early. This is, I mean, eventually, I mean, each one of those kids is looking for something else. And it's relatively the same with very early startups and big corporates. So we've done this mistake for sure. I, I, I think that almost everyone that I know done this mistake, going and kind of trying to hire from a relatively a big and well-established companies in the domain. I mean, normally you pay those individuals quite a lot from your current budget in order for them to join. But in reality, they might be very, very talented people. They are just not in the stage that you are looking for them to be. And the majority of them are not hands-on, currently can build up the things that you need. So I would always say that in the beginning, you need the people that have talent, that have passion, that can eventually dive into things and build them and wear tons of different hats. So do marketing, do sales, do everything they want. And they're actually enjoying that more than anything else. And that are smart enough to eventually learn 
and also educate themselves about what is it that we are currently doing, comparing to others, and really kind of grow from there. Um, on more advanced stages, this not necessarily will, will be the skills that you need, and you definitely need people that are a bit more established, or be a bit more structured, and have more experience in the industry. But on the very early days, just go with people that are fully passionate about what you're doing. They are all in. They breathe the same air that you are breathing on the daily basis. Okay, let's talk about your successes. How does they compare with what you imagine success might look like when you first set out? Wow, <laughs> this is a good question. If you'd ask me when we started, what would be Papa's outcome? I would probably tell you that we'll end up selling the company in about 10 to $20 million on very early stages. And I think that eventually, I remember that at the time when people asked me, do you think this company will go public? I couldn't answer this with a clear yes, because honestly, I didn't felt that I'm convinced that yes. And only after Series A, I started realizing, also seeing it from the investor's eyes, that actually I'm currently going to build a company that's going to eventually be a market leader in what we're doing in global payroll management. And that I do truly believe that we are going to take this company public and this, this is here to stay. We are not going to sell it to any other kind of company along the journey. This is a very exciting moment for me, especially that was a very, very exciting moment. I can imagine you'd be excited, certainly. Was there anybody in particular or any memorable words of encouragement that really kept you going before that point, really helped to motivate you? Yeah, so I, I think I met a lot of great people as well along the way. I think some of the very early investors, I remember some of them telling me, it's not about what you build, it's about you. I invest in you because I believe that eventually you're going to build a great company, even if you're going to pivot that or if you're, even if you're going to change some things along the way. And I think those are the things that really kind of help you take this to the next level. And it's the same with banking. I think that in reality, you just need to realize that they see you as a company that's going to grow. And I think that once you get this proof uh, and commitment from banks that they are here because they believe in the longer kind of run and the journey and the relationship, this is where you realize that it can really be significant as well. And in reality, you know, I think that being an entrepreneur, you always slide on this motion of being very aggressive and passive and kind of the mania depressia side of things. And those compliments, those small things that are leap of faith are really the one that you are looking for. And it's really helpful. Yeah, I'll bet. It must have been a real boost. You did a lot before setting up Papaya. Uh, is there anything that you wish you'd known when you set off on this journey or perhaps any advice that you might give to somebody else starting out? I just think that on the very early stage, you just need to assure that you listen to the right people and don't get confused by a lot of experience, by people that might be kind of great people and did great things. But in reality, this is your business. You know best from your intuition how to build this company. But having said that, I think that one thing that really helped me on the tech side, I mean, if I compare it to my two previous companies on the services side, those are the playbooks and the realization that a lot of companies are very, very different on the day-to-day, -day, on the operation, on the go-to-market, on the product. But on the metric side, we are very, very, very similar. So you need to assure that you learn the playbook, you understand the metrics, 
you don't try to reinvent the wheel here. You can reinvent the wheel on the product side. You don't reinvent the wheel on the financial side. And I think kind of the balancing between those two is very, very important. It's very helpful. And you also need to invest a lot of time there. Speaking of time, I'm afraid we've got to cut it there. It's been really, really great hearing your story. And I know that myself and I'm sure the listeners will be very, very keen to see what is next for Papaya Global. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That's all for today. Be sure to join for the second episode of Meet the Makers Scaling Up, where I'll be speaking to Adam Schwab, co-founder of online travel business Luxury Escapes. Thank you for listening. All opinions expressed by the participants in the Meet the Makers podcast series are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of City Commercial Bank.